So I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 87. Psalm 87, as we continue our, our time in the Psalms this summer. It's a very short psalm, just seven verses long. We're going to read the whole thing. Beloved saints, this is God's word. Let's give our full attention to the reading of it. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush, or with Cush. This one was born here, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born here. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Well, let us. Pray that the Lord would meet us in his word and speak to us from it. Our gracious God, you dwell within the pages of your word. We long to know you. We long to see you revealed within the scriptures. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word. You would open our eyes and our hearts to behold the King of glory and that you would grant us the faith to receive all that we see, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's something within each of us that longs to be a part of something. There is within us a longing to belong. And we see this early on, don't we, with children. Uh, when you're sitting in a room, somebody says something funny, and everybody starts laughing. What does the child do? The child looks around, tries to figure out what everybody's laughing about. But there's that desire to be a part of it, and so what does the child do? The child just starts laughing. And even if they don't understand what was funny, they want to be a part of it. They want to belong. And that really never goes away, does it? We all want to be a part of something. We want to be able to say we, not just I. To sense that we're in it with others. And adults do this in lots of ways. It could be simple as, uh, as simple as like name dropping, signifying that you know, you're on the inside of a part of something big. We do it with our citizenship. We identify with a country and what it stands for. Uh, but we have a thousand smaller affiliations that we care about as well. Political parties, fan clubs, followers on Facebook and Twitter, social clubs, sports teams, not just the teams you're on, but the teams you support. We create all sorts of us versus them identities in our lives. And we Christians, we have our more spiritual, our more sanctified ways of doing this, don't we? 
We do it with denominations. We do it with uh, theological camps. What authors and preachers you read and you listen to and you follow. We are quick when we hear about controversy and issues to, to figure out which side we need to be on and to argue it ardently. But the problem is that every one of these, at the end of the day, focuses on us and what we do, not on God and what He does. And this, uh, this tendency is something that it's addressed in Psalm 87 and even corrected. It shows us, as we look at Psalm 87 this morning, what we're going to see is that unity is not found in the accomplishments of men, but in the work of God, both in and through His church. That our unity is not found in what we do and what we can accomplish, but our unity is found in what God has accomplished and is accomplishing in and through His people in the church. And that's what we want to see uh, this morning as we look at this beautiful but short psalm. It, it presents this message around the image of God's mountain, of, of Mount Zion. And it's a fitting image since mountains are notorious for dividing things. Uh, when we talk about the continental divide, what we talk, we're talking about the Rocky Mountains. We, we think about our own state, the Cascades. Brian and I drove over the Cascades uh, one way Friday and back the other way yesterday. And the Cascades divide our state into two different geographies, two different climates. We saw the clouds as we descended from the pass yesterday. Uh, and really, those mountains divide our, our state into two cultures in many ways. Uh, God's mountains divide his children from the world. Mountains divide. And as we look at Psalm 87 and Mount Zion, I simply want to point out three things. Well, first, we're going to see that, that Zion is God's mountain. It's chosen and it's established by God. Second, citizenship in Zion overcomes and heals earthly divisions. And then finally, Zion is meant to form your identity and your sense of belonging. Those are the three things we want to see. That, that Zion is, is founded and established by God, that it overcomes earthly divisions, and that it is to form your identity and your, self of, your sense of belonging. So that's what we want to look at. But, so first, let's look at, at the mountain city of God that is chosen and established by God. Uh, that, that imagery of the mountain is established in the first verse of our psalm. We're told, on the holy mountain stands the city God has founded. And so two questions naturally arise. The first is, okay, which mountain is God's holy mountain? Because there are a lot of mountains in the Bible that play very important roles. Which one is the holy mountain that God has established? And the other question that arises is, in what sense is there a city on top of it? Uh, because there's a lot of mountains in the Bible and out of all of those, none has a city at the top. At least not in the ways that are obvious to our eyes. And so those are some questions that, that naturally arise that we might want to deal with. Let's spend some time wrestling with that first question, which mountain is God's mountain? If you read the Bible, you'll notice that God typically meets with people on mountains. Uh, you, start, uh, you see this early on uh, in, in Genesis and Exodus. Uh, you have God commanded to, uh, commanding uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac where? At Mount Moriah. 
Uh, you come into Exodus, and, and what do you find very quickly? You, you find God meeting with Moses at Mount Horeb, also called Sinai. That's where the burning bush is. That's where the Ten Commandments are given. You go on to the New Testament. You have the Mount of Transfiguration. You have the Temple Mount in Zion. Uh, Eden itself is called a mountain in Ezekiel, which explains why a river runs out of it. <laughs> because rivers flow from mountains. And God met with his people on mountains because mountains had to be climbed. And so as you ascended a mountain, it was like you were moving closer to heaven where God ultimately dwells. Mountains were that God used were the place where, where heaven and earth met and God, the God of heaven, met with man of earth. And it didn't mean you could just climb any mountain and find God there. Hey, there's a hill. Let's, you know, let's see who's at the top. That was not how it was. Mountains were special or holy because of God's choice to use them. Because he made himself known there. And Psalm 87 focuses on one mountain, Zion. Its name is right there for us. And the, this is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is actually Mount Moriah, where Isaac was sacrificed, becomes, is purchased by David to be the site of the, of the temple. It's a, it's a hill, a, a small mountain in Jerusalem. And God says he loves this mountain more than all the other dwelling places in Israel. And then in verse 5, it says that God himself has established Zion. He has chosen her. This is his place, his choice. This is where he has selected to dwell. All of that is to say that God does not show up at predictable locations. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be summoned through incantations or spells or, or anything else. God sets the terms on where he will meet with his people. Not us. What makes Zion special isn't that it's the tallest or even the most beautiful on earthly standards. What makes it special is that God chose to be there. He chose to set it aside. It's his presence that makes it so wonderful. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in all of creation, it's Zion that God used in a special way. Because when, where God shows up, where, where God appears, life follows. This is the God who, who brought that life-giving water out of the rock in the wilderness and, and saved Israel's life by it. It's this God who offers the water of life to any who will call upon him. And so it shouldn't surprise us that verses 5 through 7 talk about new birth and springs of water that flow from God's temple, from his holy mountain. And the birth being addressed here, spoken of, is not physical birth. This psalm is not saying that all the foreign nations will use the temple as a birthing center. That's not what it's talking about. When Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters... And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The assumption is that those who come and drink of these fountains already have one sort of life but are in need of another sort. What they lack 
is not physical life. What they lack is spiritual life, spiritual birth. They were dead in their sins, and they need to be born again. I uh, recently saw a bumper sticker. It said, born okay the first time. What is it saying? But I'm fine. I don't need help. I don't need forgiveness. And I don't need to make peace with God. What is that bumper sticker but absolute confidence that no grace is needed? Absolute certainty that if there actually is a heaven, it would be lucky to have you. That you've got it. You've got this. That you're covered. But what if you're wrong? What if you're not okay? What if you do need help? What if you do need new life? Where is it to be found? According to Psalm 87, it's found on Zion. It's found in the temple. Not because of anything the temple has to offer as a building, but because of the God who dwells within its walls. Because he is the source of life. He is the forgiver of sins. And so when the God of the temple came into this world, do you remember what he cried out in John 7? Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You can't help but hear the echoes of uh, of Moses when he struck the rock and the water poured out. And again, God would send life-giving waters and like that rock... For that water to come forth, Jesus would have to be struck. He would have to die. He would have to suffer and pay the price for all my sins. He would have to deal with all my ugly rebellion because here's the reality. I was not born okay the first time. I was born a prideful, self-centered sinner. And when any sinner comes and confesses his sin and his rebellion, when any heart bows itself in humility and asks for grace, new life pours forth and he or she, that sinner, is born anew in Zion. And that means anyone. Because there's only one requirement for coming to God, and it's not personal wealth, and it's not education, it's not being the right color or nationality, it's not knowing the right people. Look at verses 4 and 5. Among those who know God and are born again, some are Egyptians, that's what Rahab refers to, that's another name for Egypt, Babylonians, Philistines, uh, Tyrenes, and Cushites. And if, if you are familiar with, with, with the scriptures, all of these people, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, these are all the historic enemies of the Israelites. And now God is saying that he has given birth to them. They are his children. Their names are written on his scroll, his book of life. And the Bible says they can't be removed once they are added. 
And they come from Egypt and Babylon, from Israel and Iraq and Iran and Syria and China and Russia and the U.S. and Africa and Mexico and, 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 and you name it, they come. And God is saying that he has children among all the nations of the earth. They are being included among, uh, 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 including among those who have been most antagonistic to God and his people through history. And they are no longer identified by their national identities. They are identified, they are defined by the grace of God. They are first and foremost his children, born in Zion. Grace has conquered their rebellious hearts. They are no longer his enemies. He has called them friends. Can you imagine being a Jew when Psalm 87 was written and hearing, I have children in Babylon, in Egypt. And you remember Goliath, the Philistine? I've got children in Philistia. And Cush, that is Ethiopia. You know how I call Satan the king of Tyre and Isaiah? I've got children in, in Tyre. And the Jews are thinking, these are the ones who have enslaved us. These have been the thorns in our flesh. And you're calling them your children, your sons, and your daughters, your friends? And God's response would be simple. Has he not declared this to be his intention from the very beginning that, that he would bless the nations, the Gentiles? Had he not boldly asserted to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in him? Had God not promised Noah that I will bless your son Shem first, but then Japheth, those Gentile descendants of yours, will come and they will dwell in his house? God had never hidden his intentions. His plan was never to stop with the Jews. It was always to push past the borders and expand his children to fill every nation, every nook and cranny and crevice of this world. And if we don't understand that, we don't get God. If we think our earthly nationalities and histories of our people define us more than his grace, we are missing something. Because a Jew and an Egyptian, a descendant of Pharaoh even, if they have both confessed their sin and asked for grace, they have more in common than two Jews who can't say that. God's grace defines those who possess it and it transforms all other categories. An amazing thing happens when there is humility and brokenness. We know what happens with, when pride is present, don't we? When pride is present, it can divide people who share status, education, wealth. It can divide people who share DNA. But humility can unite people who look different, act different, and don't even speak the same language. You see, our desire to belong and to be a part of something is not bad. 
It's given to us by God. He has created us for community. He's created us to be a part of something. Our problem is when we look for that sense of belonging everywhere but where it is actually found. We look for it in the things we do, the things we accomplish. We look for places where we can just be ourselves and not be challenged to change or grow. But that's trying to build on a foundation of quicksand. And it will, it will crumble at the slightest tremor of pride, or the second you begin to question what once united, you, you, the second you start to grow or mature or wrestle, you'll become a pariah, an outcast, a leper. If you want a foundation that cannot be shaken, you need one that is built by God. And that brings us back to where I started. I said that Verse 1 raises two questions. The first is, which mountain is God's holy mountain? We've answered that. It's any place God blesses with his presence is a holy mountain, is the holy mountain. But the second question was this, in what sense is there a city on the mountain? Our problem is that we think of cities in terms of geographic space. But really, what are cities but population centers. God says that his temple is a city because many people live there. That's where they find their lives. God's city is a city like no other. It's, it's not built by human hands. It has no walls that can be torn down and it can't be looted. It can't be plundered because it is not of this world. Ultimately, God's city is a heavenly reality and that's why it's found on the mountain of God. Because that's where heaven and earth meet. So where do we find that city today? Where do we find God's mountain city? The Bible tells us we find it in the church. The church is the city that God has founded. It is a people defined by what God has done and not what we have done. And so if you're looking for a sense of belonging, if, you're, if you want something that is bigger than just you, if you want to be able to speak of, of we and, and not just I, if you want something that's lasting, God offers you his family, his city, his church. And its charter reads something like this. All groups have to have a charter, right? So God's charter, his city, his group looks something like this. We are a broken people. We are needy. We are liars. We are cheats. We are unfaithful. And we are rebels without a cause or reason. We are short-fused and we are thin-skinned. But we are the community of the redeemed. We have been saved by grace and our hope is not in ourselves. Our lives are not our own and we are not without hope. We are confident that our sins have been forgiven and that we will one day stand perfected before our God who will welcome us into his eternal home and he will welcome us as children. Come and join us. That's our charter. 
That's what unites. And that's what divides. Because what unites and divides people tells you a lot about their hearts. What has the power to divide you reveals what your heart thinks is most important. It's really as easy as that. And it's another reason why this image of the mountain is so helpful. As I said at the beginning, mountains are notorious for dividing people. And so what is it that is a mountain in your life? What accounts for the divisions in your life? In the first century, uh, Rome pretty much ruled the known world. And for many, for most even, that was a cause of pride. They had the most powerful army. They had the best road system and aqueducts and, and arches and things like that. Rome was strong. It was powerful. It was feared. And to be a Roman citizen was a great honor and privilege. Something some people would purchase at a great price. You remember that in Acts 22 and when uh, Paul's before the ruler and Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. He says, I am too. I bought mine at a great price. Paul says, I was born one. And eventually, what Rome expected of all its citizens and all who lived within its borders is that they would swear allegiance by saying, Caesar is Lord. But Christians confess that Christ is Lord. For them, that was the fundamental reality of life. That was the mountain that could not be crossed. To deny this was to deny their identity. And so a Christian had more in common with an Ethiopian who confessed Christ than with a family member who didn't. And the same must be true for us. And if you love Jesus, you must love his church, his holy mountain, the city he has founded. You must learn to cry out with the psalm, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. You must delight singing, all my springs are in you. You cannot love Jesus and not love his church. You can't follow him and not be a part of his church. Or as one saint put it, no one can have God as father who does not have church for his mother. It's not perfect, but neither are you. but is perfectly loved by a perfect God. We need each other. We depend upon each other. We need to crucify our idols as we heard. Those things that divide us, that become more important than God and his grace. This is where we belong and it's glorious and it's beautiful because of God's grace because God shows up and he meets us here 
because he reveals himself here. What a great reminder from Psalm 87. And that reality is driven home for us in the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine are visible pictures of Jesus' body and blood given in death in order to provide the waters of life. But then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Because the bread is a picture of Jesus, it is a symbol of what unites us, what what makes us belong. And so it's fitting to share a common loaf as a sign that we belong to each other. We've been united to each other. That we are one. And so when you feel that need to belong, that when you desire to be a part of something, something bigger, something meaningful, look at the bread and the wine on Sunday morning. And remember that this is your people. That you belong to the church. That you are citizens of a city that sits atop Mount Zion. That you were born in Zion. That you belong to God. That you are his child. Your name is written on his scroll and it cannot be removed and you cannot be lost. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Please join me in prayer. Father, you know our hearts and how much we want to belong. And yet you know how we long or we look for belonging in the wrong places. And we end up more divided than when we started. Teach us to look to you and to your church to find our sense of belonging by coming to the waters of life that flow from your temple. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. Teach us compassion, patience, understanding, and humility. Do all this by your spirit and for your glory. Amen.